We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Good evening. Today we are in Nehemiah 6. Last week, if you remember, Chris walked us through the opposition to Nehemiah, um, the guys that were opposing the building of the wall. And today we're going to move on from that and look at the actual completion of the wall um, and talk about then the aftermath. Now, if you're paying attention, we are in chapter 6. Nehemiah doesn't end until 13. So what happened? Wasn't the wall the big deal? Why does it continue for so, for so many verses? So we're going to talk about that often in the time, you know, in our lives, we may think the big event, once we've accomplished it, it's done, right? But is that the end of ministry? No, it continues, right? There's still problems to be worked out, things to do, things that need to happen. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is the completion of the wall. And then what's the ongoing ministry? What's the ongoing uh, work that has to be done that Nehemiah has to continue to lead the people and do. So um, first part of chapter six, you see the attempts to ke- kill Nehemiah. They tried to pull him away from his safe position in Jerusalem to kill him. They tried threatening letters. They tried slander. They tried all different ways to slow him down. And then now we're going to look at the completion of the wall. But Before I get into that, I want to give you kind of a picture, uh, an an allegory, an illustration of what's going on, the feelings that Nehemiah goes through in this story, Um, the the, kind of give you an idea of of kind of the, the heights and then the lows of what ministry can be sometimes. And to do that, I want to talk a little bit about the Battle of Marathon. Okay, how many have heard of the Battle of Marathon? Okay, it's, it's not what happens in Dallas every fall where people run for 26 miles. Okay, I'm talking about the original Battle of Marathon, the first Persian war where the Persians invaded Athens, invaded Attica with 25,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry, 100,000 armed sailors, and 800 plus ships, a massive army and navy invasion. And in their way is 10,000 Greeks. So if you're a betting person, what do you think is going to happen here? My odds are on the big numbers, right? But the Greeks were able to organize a really good strategy. They caught the Persians by surprise. They kind of put extra men on their wings to envelop the Persians and kill them. And something no one thought possible happened, the Greeks won. They force the Persians back on their ships and they have a moment to sigh that this thing, this big thing, no one thought was possible happened. We forced the greatest empire in the world back. We caused them to leave Attica. And so they're sitting there, they're about to celebrate and then they notice something. The 800 ships, they don't start heading towards Persia. They start heading towards Athens, their hometown. That's 26 miles away. So is the work done, even though they've won the biggest underdog battle ever? No, all right? So this is where you get the story of the marathon. A guy named Pheidippides was sent back to warn the city, hey, we need to secure the city. The work still continues. Even though we would like to celebrate this big, massive victory, there's still work to be done. We have to secure the city. And so he gets the message back in time. It turns back the Persians and eventually they're able to win, all right? It's a similar situation with Nehemiah. The thing he's been working for this whole time, the building of the wall, 
gets built. And instead of being able to celebrate, instead of being able to say, hey, we've done this amazing thing no one thought could be done, he immediately has to go back to work. He immediately has to shut down and start securing the city from attacks, from other issues, and actually starts doing a lot of the hard work of ministry. One commentator said for Nehemiah, you know, he's, he's done what we would think is the hard thing, the wall, but now he really starts the real hard work, which is the hearts of the people. That's what's going to take the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book, is how do we secure the city? So just like the Athenians wanted to secure Athens, make sure that they secure this victory, now Nehemiah needs to secure the city. How do we make sure that this isn't just one big project we celebrate and then that's it? but that this is an ongoing, enduring ministry, right? Everybody with me? All right, so let's see how Nehemiah is gonna do that. He's gonna go from this high to make sure that the ministry continues. Um, just on a side note for all my runner friends, uh, one version of the story has Phidippides. He gets to Athens and then he immediately falls over dead. So if anyone asks me to run a marathon, I'm gonna quote you the story of Phidippides as to why, <laughs> anyway, that's a side note. Um, but we're looking at Nehemiah. How do we secure the city? Now that we've built the wall, how do we make sure that the ministry continues, God continues to be worshiped, all of those sort of things. So we're gonna see three little vignettes. So I got three vignettes for you, three points that all start with C because I like alliteration as you probably know. We're gonna look at first completing the work, the finishing of the wall, this high point, this thing nobody thought could be done. This thing that they have been working towards since the beginning of Nehemiah. Second, we're gonna look at continued opposition. Even though the wall is up, you're gonna see continued opposition. People are gonna continue to try to bring down the ministry. Um, and in fact, like it's almost immediate after the construction of the wall, they start trying to take you down. Why? All right, they wanna distract and the good work that God has done. Uh, three, commissioning the guards. So the last thing we'll look at is now he's gonna try to secure the city. He's gonna put some administrative reforms to protect the city and to put people in charge, make sure there's people on the walls um, to make sure that the city is safe and those kind of things, all right? So uh, let's start with number one, completing the work. So Nehemiah 6, Nehemiah 6, starting in verse 15 so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month in 52 days. Okay, so a couple things here. First off, this is roughly October. So it's kind of cool that we've reached this point in Nehemiah to celebrate the wall being completed. It's a roughly sometime in October. And noticed how long it took him, 52 days. That's amazing. A major work like this taking 52 days. What if somebody told you, hey, I'm going to complete I-35 in 52 days? <laughs> That's the correct response, right? Like, no way. Like, nothing ever gets done that fast, and we have modern technology. So I want you to understand what a true miracle this is, that they can get it done in 52 days. This has been less, six, less than six months since Nehemiah set out to fix the wall. Can you imagine that? Goes from him in Susa saying, hey, I need to do something to full completion of the project six months later. Yet again, somebody comes to you and says, I can fix, I got a plan for I-35, I can fix it in six months. You would just laugh at them, right? That doesn't 
happen. This is truly a miracle. No one thought it could be done this quickly. Why? How in the world did they finish so quickly? How did they finish so successfully? I think there are a couple characteristics about Nehemiah and about the people that add to it. Uh, You know, Nehemiah was a successful leader. He was a good leader. He had good structure and a plan. He was a great team builder, those kind of things. Um, The people were dedicated to the work. But notice what it says here as to why they're successful. Verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it, the completion of the wall, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Why was it done so quickly? God. Right, this is a good lesson for us, right? Like, it doesn't matter your, your, your talents. I mean, that's helpful. Nehemiah obviously had some talent. But ultimately, the success of the project was because of God. And even the non-Christians, the pagans, the nations recognize this is the work of God. There's something unique in this work. And this, of course, ties back earlier in Nehemiah because he made this prediction in Nehemiah 2 when the opposition, he finally responded to opposition the first time. Nehemiah 2, 19 through 20. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem heard it, they mocked us and despised. What is this thing you're doing? What are you rebelling against the kings? When they were trying to start the wall. And I answered them, Nehemiah, and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. The God of heaven will give us success. Why were they able to do it so quickly, so perfectly, so well? God. Nehemiah says it at the beginning. He relies on God all through it. And now he's giving the attention to God and people recognize it. Verse 20 of Nehemiah 2. I answered them saying, God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you'll have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. We're doing the work, but it's God. That's the secret here. God's the one that makes it happen. And this is the testimony we want of our ministry, right? That when people look at what we do, they don't say, man, he's a really great speaker, or man, he's a real loving person, or he's a great servant. What we want people to say is, there's something special about him that's not from him. That's God in him, right? That's what we want our ministries to look like. That's the kind of radical thing we've been called to, So as great of an administrator as Nehemiah is, as dedicated as he is, it's the God working through him that the nations recognize here. And that should be the case for us. For me, I think of like the early church, um, the first and second century churches, people recognized there was something weird about these Christian people and the way that they would give everything off their back for poor um, you have Roman emperors complaining that the Christians not only give to their own poor, but to the, everyone else's poor and make the Romans look bad. And she writes that in a letter to one of the pagan priests. Like, I can't believe these guys are so giving. They rescued babies that were discarded and abandoned. They died for their faith. And when people saw them, they said, there's something special about these people. And that's the testimony we want to have. It's God in us, not us. Does your ministry look like that? So we've completed the wall. The people have recognized it's the work of God and they lose their confidence. Did y'all catch that? They lose their confidence. This work can't be stopped. But in the next verse, they immediately start trying to discredit it. 
Also in those days, verse 17 of Nehemiah 6, also in those days, many letters went out from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan um, had married the daughter of Meshulam. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence, Nehemiah's presence, and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. The wall's up. What is he trying to do? Okay, the wall's up. We would hope we could just celebrate, sit back and relax, but that's not how ministry happens, right? It's a marathon. That's why I used that illustration in the beginning. It's an ongoing, continual thing that we've got to grind it out. They want to discredit Nehemiah. They want to take credit, possibly, for the wall. They want to ingratiate themselves into and undermine the Jewish people and their worship God through kind of underhanded ways. Um, First, we see there's an alliance between Tobiah and some of the nobles. These are people in the church, in in the people of God that are um, bending, that are willing to partner with this uh, pagan, okay? Um, Willing to um, negotiate their faith. And they are and he has uh, kind of ingratiated himself into the noble. Okay, notice he's intermarried. Uh, he's taken advantage of that to get connected. Okay, he is the ruler um, of one of the surrounding nations. So he's powerful, he's well-connected, and he is trying to undermine Nehemiah through political means. Okay, believe it or not, sometimes politicians can lie. You know, they can try to undermine other politicians. And we're seeing that here, trying to hurt Nehemiah's uh, relationship among the people, okay? And is well-connected. Shechaniah was one of the first Jews and one of the first returns. So that's his father-in-law. So he's connected to one of those first guys that came back and he knows all of the main leaders. Uh, His son's father-in-law was one of the wall builders himself, Meshulam. We saw him in chapter three. Meshulam built two different sections of the wall. And so Tobiah is trying to undermine Nehemiah, take over political power and try to get rid of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah can't rest. He has to deal with this. And Tobiah uses three mechanisms in order to try to undermine Nehemiah. First off, uh, he gets the noblemen to speak good deeds about Tobiah. They want to make Tobiah seem like a friend. Would you buy that based on what has happened so far? Tobiah has been his thorn in his side. But this is a way the enemy tries to undermine the work of the church, right? To seem like a friend. Let me use my power and influence to help you, Nehemiah. These guys have said how great I am and how many things I've done to help you out. Like, I'm a good guy. I'm on your side. Is that true? It's Tobiah on Nehemiah's side. So he's using this to try to undermine the authority, and he's using, he's trying to come along as a friend to be able to get Nehemiah to bend, to um, change his position, to allow some changes, to try to syncretize with the surrounding communities. Um, uh, I'm a kind of a Lord of the Rings fan, so this kind of brings to mind um, one of the quotes from Lord of the Rings where 
the hobbits meet Strider for the first time. If, has everybody seen the movies or read the books? And, and they don't know what to think about this guy. Uh, and and, and um, <clears throat> Frodo says, uh, talking about Strider, I think one of his spies, Sauron's spies, would seem fairer and feel fouler if you understand. Oftentimes, and Tolkien gets this right, oftentimes the way they try to undermine ministry is by seeming like a friend, right? To appear like I can help you along. I can help you out. Okay, you should, Nehemiah, join with Tobiah and this will be better for everyone. And this is all through the Bible, right? Like the snake offering advice to Adam and Eve. Did he really say that? Don't you think it would be better? Um, even the temptation of Christ, right? Like, just worship me and I'll give you all these gifts. I'll give you this power. I'll give you this wealth, right? So that's what Tobiah's plan here is, is try to undermine Nehemiah by getting him to compromise and to choose friendship with this worldly power rather than relying on God. So that's one thing, the good deeds, to try to appear as a friend. Uh, number two, reports of spies talking about Nehemiah's actions to Tobiah. There are people that Tobiah has gotten within the core of Nehemiah's group that are now acting as spies to undermine Nehemiah's actions. This could be either reporting on his movements, so maybe they can kill him, or to find something they can use and twist in order to discredit Nehemiah. And that happens sometimes where the enemies of the people of God can twist something to make it seem like a bad thing. We've seen that already, right? Earlier, um, the opponents of Nehemiah said, okay, he's building this wall. Why is he building this wall? Because he wants to set himself up as a king to rebel against Persia. Is that true? No, but they started out with the truth. He's rebuilding the wall and then they corrupt it just enough to try to undermine Nehemiah. And that's what he's doing here. He's getting spies to find information. What can we use against him? What can we use? And then finally, when that doesn't work, we have this open letter from Tobiah to Nehemiah, direct confrontation, cease and desist, or I'm coming after you. All right. So we've built the wall. There's continual opposition. They're trying to undermine the leadership of Nehemiah. They don't want to see his reforms continue. So we're going to do everything we can, either appear as a friend, use spies, or openly threaten him in order to stop the work. All right, so what's he going to do? So this brings us to the third point. All right, so completion of the work, continuation of opposition, now commissioning the guard. Is there a threat is the city secure? Is it open to problems right now? Yeah, most of it's underhanded, most of it's political, but there is a, a, a threat that Nehemiah needs to address. So let's look at Nehemiah 7. Now moving on to chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the wall was rebuilt and I'd set up the doors, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed... So what we see here is we're, we're setting up workers, appointing workers to man the wall. How efficient is a wall with no guards on it? Could that be problematic? All right. 
That's something a ladder can fix real quick, right? The wall's not going to ultimately save you. You need guys manning it. And so in an emergency pinch, he turns to the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. Now, what's the normal job of those three groups? Where are they normally stationed? Does anybody know? The temple, right? These are the gatekeepers of the temple. These are the singers that lead them in worship. These are the Levites, right, that assists the priest in the operation of the temple. Why does he turn to those groups? Who's going to be most dedicated to God? Who's going to realize the importance of this act? So now they go from protecting the temple to protecting the people of God. I think that's a beautiful picture, right, of of the church, that no longer are we constrained to just the temple, it's the people as a whole. And so our ministry is to more than just a location. Not only that, but these guys are organized. You know who they are. They have a rank. There's different clans. There's different groups that are used to dedicated work and organized work. And so they make great guards. Let's put them in charge to watch, to see what Tobiah's up to, okay, or Sambal or the other guys. We need to make sure that we secure this city now that we have the wall up. But you don't need just workers. You also need someone to lead the workers. Verse 2 So I put Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. All right, so we have two leaders here that are appointed to be in charge. Um, If you go back a couple chapters, Jerusalem was divided into different regions that had rulers over different regions of, of Jerusalem, but you need someone in charge of the entire defense. And Nehemiah, being a good leader, knows that he has to delegate And so he picks these two men to lead the defense of the city. Uh, One is his brother. Why do you think he picked his brother? Hopefully you can trust your brother. Okay. And so he picks his brother because he knows he's a reliable guy. Um, He's not going to betray him. And if you remember back in Nehemiah 1, Hananiah is the one that told Nehemiah of the issue. Nehemiah 1, 2 through 3. Now that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some of men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and survived the captivity about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there live in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. So Hananiah is one of the first to bring it to Nehemiah's attention that this needs to happen. And so he's dedicated to the project from day one. He's wanting uh, to be a part of this. And so he's a guy because of family connections, because of his dedication to God, because he's already shown a desire to see the wall up, that he's going to put him in charge. And then you have Hananiah, the other guy, who was the commander of the fortress. And notice why he is chosen. I love this little piece, this little nugget here. Why was he chosen? Is it because of military prowess? because of administrative skills. He's a really good speaker. He was inspired man. No, he was picked for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. That's what makes us different from the world. Leadership is not based on skills, abilities, talents. What really matters is your character and your dedication to God. That's who we should follow. Who is truly following God? Who 
is a faithful person, a faithful man who's shown himself dedicated to God and fears God more than many. That's who we follow. This is very different. I love this contrast. You have Tobiah who represents kind of the worldly idea of leadership. He's well-connected, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he has spies, all that kind of stuff. But who does Nehemiah turn to? The guy who is faithful, the guy who loves and fears God. That's who I want at the top. He may not be the best public speaker. He may not be the best administrator, and that's okay. Does he love God? Does he fear him more than many? Very different if you go to like, you know, Barnes and Noble, if that still exists, um, and go to like the leadership section. They never have a book on, you know, fearing God as their leadership books, right? It's all about the six principles for inspiring people or the 30 principles for administrating, okay? No, for Nehemiah, it's do you fear God? Um, Verse three, now we're getting to like the nuts and bolts. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're standing guard, let them be shut and bolt the door. So we're setting regulations. We have the men in charge now. We have the guys operating and watching the wall. Now we need to talk about how we're going to go about securing the city. Here's, here's the regulations. So at night, for instance, when it's dark, we want the city gates closed. Why? All right, that's when guys sneak in, that's when thieves come in, all those kind of things. We wanna make sure that we're securing the city from outside influence, all right? We wanna make sure that the gates are guarded, that the gates are closed when they don't need to be open, and that we only open them when we're really safe and secure. <clears throat> 3B, we also appointed guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post <clears throat> and each in front of his own house. Now, if you remember, Nehemiah's done this kind of strategy before, right? In the wall building, uh, a lot of the guys that had certain areas of responsibility was across from their house. Why is it a good idea to make him in charge of guarding that area? If his house is right there, is he gonna be much more dedicated than the average guy, right? He's protecting his house, but he's also protecting the city. We wanna make sure that we have good men in charge, good men watching the gates, and good policies on how to protect and secure everything, okay? Um, all right, so thoughts. Next week, we'll look at uh, Nehemiah's continued reforms. There's some other issues. Now that we've secured the city, now he needs to go about reforming the people and filling the city. So that's what we'll look at next week. But I just want to end with just some kind of concluding thoughts, some application. What can we learn from this, um, this story that maybe we could apply uh, to our own lives? Well, so first, looking at the first point, completing the work, what work should we focus on? <clears throat> Nehemiah, if he was after power and wealth, he should have joined Tobiah, right? He should have done his own thing. But instead, who's directing the work of Nehemiah? Who's empowering the work of Nehemiah? God. That should be our goal too, right? Are we following our own goals? Are we following the goals of God? Are we letting him lead us? Or are we trying to set our own agendas, go our own way? Because that can get you in trouble, right? That'll get you to compromise, to join forces with somebody like Tobiah, 
um, to, to negotiate your faith or to bend, to, to deny certain areas of scripture, things like that. No, God sets our goals. And when we let God set our goals, great things happen, right? Our goal is that when people see us, they, and like in 616, when they hear about it, they lose their confidence for they recognize this work has been accomplished with the help of God, right? That's our goal. That's what we wanna make sure that we have. So my challenge to you guys is to think about your, your own lives. Like, how are you letting God set your goals and how are people seeing God in you and your ministry? Are they praising you? Are they praising your abilities? Are you drawing attention to God or to yourself? Okay, what does that look like in your life? Uh, I hope it's pointing to God so they recognize that this work is accomplished with the help of our God. Um, second, with the continued op opposition, there, we will be persecuted. There will be opposition always, right? As long as we're on this side of heaven, there's work to be done. You can't just rest once the wall is built. And we've all been there, right? You have those kind of high points. You, you go to camp or you share the gospel with someone and you're on a high, all right? But it doesn't end there, does it? Um, I just got back from Austria a couple weeks ago and I got to see all these excited people ready to you know, do ministry for God. And man, I wish I could just live off of that high forever. But as soon as you get home, what happens? You gotta go back to work, right? You gotta go down, you gotta make sure to keep doing ministry. You can't just rest on past achievement, past things. Ministry continues. Um, and there will always be opposition. And Christ warned us about this, right? John 15, 18 through 21, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Why did they go after Nehemiah? He was doing the work of God. Why did Tobiah hate Nehemiah? Because he was doing the work of God. Uh, why does the world hate us? Call us bigots and various other terrible names because we're doing the work of God. If you're one of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, this is verse 19 in John 15, I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember this word I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. For if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Does it ever stop? Until Christ comes back, until we get to heaven, there's gonna be a long marathon of ministry, right? You're gonna have to continue to fight the opposition. They're gonna come after you. Um, you're gonna have a high after tonight, right? We came together, we worshiped, it was beautiful. We got to see all our family, our church family. But I guarantee you, Monday morning at work, something's gonna hit you, right? Something is gonna challenge you. Are you ready? And what's that gonna look like? I love the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 5 through 8. It's kind of his, his final letter. He's writing to his protege, trying to give him some advice. What does ministry look like? How does that work? And he says these, uh, starting in verse 5, but to you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I am being poured out as a drink offering and the time of departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's our goal. It's not a one-off build a wall, one exciting thing. It's a lifetime of faithful ministry. Being an evangelist, 
continuing to endure hardship, fulfilling the ministry. What does that look like in your life? Are you running it well? Are you running the marathon well? How is that working in your life? And then finally, just some final thoughts, the lessons on leadership. We have this contrast that I mentioned earlier. The leadership of Tobiah versus the leadership of Hananiah, you had these two contrasts. Tobiah is well-connected. Everything from a worldly perspective would say, we need to follow Tobiah. He's well-connected. He's wealthy. He has the ear of the Persian king. He has powerful friends. He has noblemen in Judah that are his friends. He has an army. We need to follow him. But that's not the leadership we follow, right? It's the leadership of guys like Nehemiah and the guys like Hananiah, faithful men who fear God more than any. And if you think about in the church, you know, normally when we think about picking pastors or elders, we think about, okay, who's the most talented preacher? Who's the most talented motivational speaker? Who's the most talented administrator? We, we navigate in our flesh towards those kind of things. But if you look at what the Bible says about biblical leadership, it's character, right? It's character. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. He must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, gentle, peaceful, free from the love of money. Those are all character issues, aren't they? It doesn't say he needs to be able to inspire massive groups of people to follow him, or he needs to be able to fundraise for massive things, or he needs to be able to, you know, have such an inspiring speech that everyone jumps and runs. No, what is the characteristics of good biblical leadership? It's character, above reproach, temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable. Or if you don't want to simplify that, it's what we have here in Nehemiah. He fears God more, right? Do you fear God more? Are you following after the guy that just has the best abilities? Um, how do we in the church find those guys with good character? How do we as members of the church become those people with good character? And that's really the challenge for us, right? Am I seeking after talent, power, wealth, connections, or am I seeking after being a husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable? What are we seeking after? So next week, we're going to continue. We're going to look at more of the reforms of Nehemiah. We're going to look at now, he's got to fill this city that we've built a wall around. And he's got to look for people that have character, right? We want people that will follow God and fear him more than any. And I pray that's true of us. And looking out here, I'm, I get excited knowing most of you are doing that. But my challenge is continue. Continue to run that race. Continue in the faith. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for everyone here and for the lessons of, of Nehemiah and what your scripture communicates about how different we are from the world, um, that we're called to a higher standard and that we're called to be people who fear you and are people of good character, showing fruits of the spirit in our lives, Lord. I just thank you for everyone here and pray as we go out and about our week, as we suffer opposition, as we suffer hardship, that we continue to be faithful to the ministry you've called us to, whatever that is. 
And I just thank you for everyone in this congregation and their, their heart for you and pray that we will continue to be a light in this community, a light among our family and friends. And when people see us, they notice something different, that they recognize this is a work of God. And Lord, I just thank you for everyone and pray in your name. Amen.